0: Well, good morning. I don't think I said this at morning. the beginning, but if I don't know you, my name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful you're here today. Um, hey, Maggie, can you hear me? All right. If, if, Nathan, if I start talking too soft because I get too comfortable, just give me one of those. And maybe one of these. Raise the roof. Okay. You can raise the roof. That's fine. We're, we're all about raising the roof today. So um, a couple of things just really quickly. If you came in a little late or you're a parent, just a reminder, we won't be in here next Sunday. There will be a family worship guide put on the app. It will be put online on our website that you can access that probably by Tuesday. So if you want to do it early in the week, that's great. There will be a family worship guide, um, but we won't be in here. And then also as a reminder, so you can plan for your families, um, we won't be in here for Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. We'll be at Willard. And so just know that. I want to say that over and over so people don't like show up here on that day and be like, why, where is everybody? We're going to be in a Willard school. And so we'll give you the address, um, and we'll make sure that's clearly communicated everywhere. But just know that that's coming, because we, we literally can't be in here on those days. But Willard doesn't have those policies. Springfield Public Schools have those policies. So just know that's where we are. But next week, um, if you could, pray for, for yourselves. Pray for all our volunteers. It's the one week of the year that they get a week off. And that's, that's kind of a big deal. We kind of love that. Um, I hate missing church. I don't want to miss the gathering, but we'll do family worship, and we'll get a chance to rest a little bit, so that'll be good. All right, you guys ready? Yes. All right, if you want, you can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. But before we actually jump into it, have you ever heard the phrase, I'm not sure exactly how it goes, but the phrase is something like this. It's like trying to drink water from the firehouse. Uh, yeah, well, I hope you're ready, because that's what you're in for today. Um, The first half of this sermon, in particular, is going to be absolutely loaded with scripture references. And so here's what I want you to do, especially some of you that I I know you're going to ignore me. Here's what I want you to do. You listening? I want you to take notes, whether on your phone or your notebook. And listen, I know some of you aren't note takers. You don't have to take notes on my sermon. I I don't even really, I don't care as much if you take notes on my sermon. I'm going to be quoting some scripture. And if that scripture sticks with you, I want you to remember it. Because here's what's going to happen today. The Holy Spirit is going to stir in your heart at some point. Whether that's conviction or encouragement or you think that is what I need. That's what I need to hear. That's what I need to stick in my brain. You know how it sticks in your brain? Write it down. Then read it again. Think about it again. Pray over it again. Talk with other people about it again and again and again. This is what we're talking about today. So I want you to write them down so you can come back to them later. Because... Here's why. The last few weeks in Philippians have really been about transforming our minds. Well, we've been talking about particular things, but in the end, that's what it's been about, about transforming our our minds. How God does not want you to think the way the world does. God doesn't want you to be wrapped up in your your own negative thoughts or sin patterns, but he wants you to think in the way that he created you to think before the fallen world got in the way. But Christ has come and redeemed that fallen world, so he can transform our minds to be like his. He has redeemed us, so we can think in a different way. So today is our third to last sermon in this series on the book of Philippians, which is blown my mind. And this idea of renewing our minds is going to be brought home today. So if you haven't been with us through this whole series, it's just going to be impossible for me to recap the whole thing by now. But let me just give you a brief recap. Philippians was a letter written to an actual church 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. Right, the Jewish leader who converted to Christianity and started this church in, in Philippi. And so now he's in Rome. He's in jail for his faith. He's writing this letter to encourage this church that he loves so much. And what he's been doing is really kind of addressing problems that are outside the church and inside the church. As I've said, this is a pretty healthy church. Things are going pretty well, but they're being persecuted and they're having problems with division between leaders inside the church. So Paul is really calling to address these things. And so what I said last week is God has As much as God ever does, in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, he almost gives us a blueprint for how we walk out of anxiety and into truth. God never gives us blueprints, but this is about as close as God gets to do this step and then this step and then this step about how we we don't get trapped by anxiety and fear and worry, but we can be set free. So I I want us to read that really quickly. That's about the best recap we can do of where we've been, because this passage absolutely feeds into the passage we're going to be in today. So in Philippians 4... Verse 4 through 7, let's read this one quickly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus will guard you in Christ Jesus. So when hard things come, what do we do? We rejoice. Right? In all things, always, we rejoice in the Lord. We look to all of the good things, all the goodness, all the strength that is in us because of who God is. And out of that rejoicing, we're reasonable. And if you were with us, remember that word reasonable is is a weighty word. It means to be gentle, to be kind, to be understanding, to walk in the humility of Christ, to look to other interests before you look to your interests. Don't get separated and all hung up on all your differences. Be focused on where you're united in Christ. Let your reasonableness be known to everything. And then always, what's that word again? Always. Always. It's so easy for our minds to immediately start making reasons why we're the exception to the rule, rule, right? Always in everything. In prayer and in supplication, which basically means pleading. It means an urgent request that we plead with God. With thanksgiving. This is how we get free from our anxiety, right? With thanksgiving. Thankfulness. Is that not... Perfect timing for this week. we got Thanksgiving next week. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that God is in a couple passages talking about Thanksgiving this week. With Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding. Listen, a divine, heavenly, supernatural peace. That is more powerful than your worry, than your fear, than your anxiety. God wants to give you this peace. Why? So that he can guard your hearts. He can guard your mind. God's so good that he gives you a command, don't be anxious. And then he says, but I want to do everything I possibly can to guard you and to give you my peace so that you actually can walk out of this." As we said last week, our minds can be an absolute minefield, right? Of negative thoughts rolling around in our brain that won't get out, of worry, of fear, of doubt, of anxiety. So God wants you to know, again, although he's giving you this command, he's given you everything so that you can walk out of anything when it comes to your anxiety, right? And we talked about how that's a physical thing, how that's an emotional thing, how that trauma feeds into that. All kinds of things feed into that. Yes and amen, we're on board with all of those things. Anxiety is not something you just get over like that, but God is showing you that this is a spiritual battle, and this is how you walk in and through the spiritual battle. That is a war for so many of us. There's so much more to say. I want to say more, but if you missed it, we recorded it, and we recorded it on a phone from over there, and so praise God that we have it. The recording is way better than I thought, but it's not awesome. If you want to hear last week's sermon, you get to hear it, listen to it. Bear with it, because it's, it's worth it, and I'm saying not because my sermon was awesome, but as I told you guys last week, this has been one of the most influential passages in my entire life, and I, I, I think almost every person in this room at some, some point gets overwhelmed with anxiety or fear or busyness or whatever overwhelms you. We need this passage. We need God to guard our hearts and our minds. We need the peace of Jesus Christ. Okay, i got to move on. But what I also said is that we finished this, that passage that I love so much is that God was not done yet, not even close. This week, he has more guidance, more ammo, more encouragement, and not just for the battle against anxiety, but in the battle for our minds. Right, So that our minds are not conformed to this world. It's not, we're, not, we're not swayed always by our fickle hearts that are all over the place, but, but that we really can be transformed to have minds that are more like our Savior Jesus Christ. And and in the end, like we already kind of mentioned, what this passage is really gonna come down to, you ready what it comes down to? Thanksgiving. It it really comes down to being thankful for remembering who God is, what he's done, what he's given us, the things that he's doing, and not always getting hung up on all the negative things, but operating in thankfulness all of the time. If we can operate in thankfulness, it changes everything. I don't know if you've seen, secular studies have been done showing that thankfulness changes things. And so we're gonna be talking about a lot of different things, but all in the end it all comes down and is rooted in being thankful so that God's peace might rule over your rule over your life. So that's what we're gonna dive into today. So for our passage today, Philippians 4, we're gonna be in just two verses, eight and nine. Philippians four verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers. That can be translated as brethren, that can be translated as brothers and sisters. So that's everybody. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God's telling you how to think. Did you see that? Think about these things. And this is Paul talking, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Paul's saying, like, listen, that doesn't make sense to you. Look to my life. Look how it's practically played out in my life. Paul's not saying he's perfect, but he's saying that he strives to live this way. So we can follow his example. And then finally, he says, practice these things, and the God of peace will, not might be, will be with you. Will be with you. Did you see it? Did you, see, did you see how God is trying to help us transform our minds by making sure we're focused on the right thing? So easy to be focused on the wrong things. He wants us to focus on the right things. And so this, this passage started with the word finally. Finally, mark, or comma, finally, comma, right, making a point. Paul actually started chapter 3 with the word finally. And he kind of started his last thought all the way back in, in chapter 3, and he's kind of wrapping it up here. And what this, what this finally was about is, he basically, before he said, finally, I want you to rejoice. Back then, and his point is, I know hard things are happening. I know there's things happening outside the church and in your families outside of this church family that are making life hard. I know there's things happening inside the church family that are making things hard. And so when hard things come, his whole point to this whole thing is, I want you to rejoice, Find your happiness, find your joy in the Lord, because, man, listen, hard things are going to happen in life, hard things are going to happen in our church, sin is still a part of this world, but Paul's point, rejoice, that is our anchor, we rejoice in the Lord. So that's the point he's making here, we need to rejoice. Rejoice in all the goodness that God is doing all around us all the time, if we'll just look up, stop looking down at our feet, and we'll just look up and try to see it, because there's a lot going on all around us. Okay, with that, I hope you're ready to start with the notes. Because God is telling us how to think, how to have our minds focused on these things, and what are the things he's, what's the thing He starts with, whatever is true. That's what we're supposed to think about, whatever is true. I think this is probably the most important one, because it's truth, in the end. it's truth that our faith is rooted in. It's truth that our love is rooted in. It's truth that our worldview is rooted in. It's truth that keeps our minds rooted in the right thing. And so what I'm going to spend, by far, by far, I'm going to spend the most time on whatever is true. So if we get done in, in like 20 minutes from now and I've got down to the first point, just, just take a breath, right? This one's, we're going to spend way, way more time on this one than all the one, all of them. So here's what I'm going to do. What truth is it talking about? Well, we, we're going to start with God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to talk about four different points just under this one. What is true? I'm going to talk about who God is, what he has done, why he did it, and how he did it. And I'm going to give you scriptures for each. You don't have to, you don't have to listen to me about why these things are important. We're going to let scripture speak. Um, and hear me. These, the ones we're going to talk about now, these are the main ones. These are the, these are the kind of passages that, listen, you have to pray over and pray through. You, you need to meditate on. You need to think about. You need, this is your ammo. This is the, the spiritual battle. This is how you fight the war. With truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and empowered by the community of God. You don't have any hope to overcome these things alone, without the Word of God, without seeking the Holy Spirit, and without the community of God. There's, there's no hope for those things. I know anxiety makes you want to pull back from everybody else, to push everybody away, to be isolated. That's how the enemy works with this lie. Like I told you, it's an insidious lie, anxiety. It's so effective of a tool to keep you away from God and going down the path that Satan wants you to go. No, this is how you fight. So listen to these truths. Hold on to them. All right. Let's start with who God is. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. If you can turn really, really fast, you might be able to make some of these, but I'm going to tell you the references. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen says this. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger, how often do we think of God that way? Slow to anger and abounding, not just some, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This actually comes from Exodus. This is a quote from Exodus when when Moses asked to see God's glory, when God's glory passes by, God's very presence proclaims this, proclaims who God is. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed over this, how many times I've thought about this. Because in the end, if I root my faith in me, I'm going to always feel let down. But when I'm struggling, I just remember, oh, God is so slow to anger. He's so merciful. Like, he is abounding in steadfast love. He is abounding in faithfulness to me. That's who my God is. What do I have to fear? Why, am I so, why, why do I come down so hard on myself? Why do I come down so hard on Why do I anxiety win? This is who my God is. Man, this might be the most important one for you to dwell on and think about who our God is. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's so good. It's so good who our, who our God is. Here's another one. Another truth about God, about who God is. Revelation 22, 13. Revelation 22, 13, right at the end of the Bible. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Listen, before anything was and after everything is, God is the I am. Listen, God just is. There is nothing in all creation that stood before God. There is nothing in all creation that will stand after God. That's where our hope and our true peace comes from, right? No matter what happens in this world, whatever happens in a moment, we worship the I am, the beginning and the end. We can trust in that. We can hope in that, right? Don't let the moment of temporary things overwhelm you because we have the alpha and the omega behind us. The last one today about who God is. I had so many, but I, like, I, gotta, I gotta rein it in. The last one about who God is, John 11. John eleven twenty five 25 through 27. Says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is our Messiah, the one promised from the beginning, the one talked about all through the Old Testament. He is the one. He is the Son of God. This is, in the end, this is our hope. That God said, I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to bring you into my family. And Jesus is the one. This is our hope. This is our truth. This is what it means to be a child of God. So what do we have to fear if all those things are true? Like, we just stop there. Like, this is who we worship. Dwell on this, man. Meditate on this. Like, don't take it lightly. Actually take time to think about the implications of what this means, if this really is who our God is and this is who we worship. Okay. That's enough on who God is. Let's look at what he has done. What has God done? Romans 5. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says this. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, that means to be made right to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also, here's that word again, rejoice in God. Through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received reconciliation meaning the debt has been paid you have been made right what did god do he paved the way for all for all to be saved by the blood of jesus christ god's love running so deeply for his creation then he says i even died for my enemies and what i always think of take that to the extreme as Jesus cried from the cross, Father, forgive them. He even died for those who put him on the cross, if they would only believe. And that is unbelievable. I know you've heard that before. How unbelievable is that? Man, I get, I get frustrated when somebody makes a snide comment to me or cuts me off in traffic, and I'm like, I want to get them. Jesus from the cross cried out, God, help them to see, forgive them so they might be saved. That's how God loves. That's who God is. incredible. What else did he do? Romans 8, 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit, that's capital S, Holy Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. What truth is better than that? I mean, I love the salvation part. Don't get me wrong. I know what I deserve and I know what God has rescued me from. But what truth is better than that? That God only saved us, but made us his children, placed his spirit in us to guide us and give us everything we need and made us. This word sons means firstborn sons. It means heir. It means the one of inheritance. He made us firstborn sons and fellow heirs with Christ, fellow heirs of Christ's kingdom. I mean, come on. Hear me. This is true. Anxiety is not who you are. Fear is not who you are. Worrying is not who you are. Anger is not who you are. Lust is not who you are. Doubt is not who you are. This is who you are. Child, heir, glorified with Christ. Believe it. Dwell on it. Fight the lies with it. This is what changes lives. Not thinking, man, I just wish I was a better person. Why do I suck so much? Why does that person suck so much? No, this is what changes lives. This is what you write down. This is what you dwell on. This is who you are. Don't trust your feelings on your bad days. You trust this. That's what God has done. Why did God do what he's done? John 17, 1. And maybe Jesus' most famous prayer, John 17, 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He's praying. And said, Father, the hour has come. Like we When he says the hour has come, we're like, you might know, like, yeah, that's the cross. That's his crucifixion and resurrection. But really what that represents is everything God has been promising since the beginning. The fruition of the redemption of all things and all people who would come to him. That's the hour that has come. Thousands of years of prophecies. The hour has come. And then what does he say? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. Jesus came. He did what he did so that God might be glorified. That's the number one reason why God did what he did. Why God has done what he's done. So through the Father glorifying the Son in his death, but really in his resurrection showing that death couldn't hold him that sin and Satan couldn't hold him, resurrecting, honoring, glorifying the Son, and through the Son, glorifying the Father by his perfect obedience, by his perfect righteousness. He displayed God's justice. He displayed God's mercy. He displayed God's grace. He displayed all of the most important reasons why we give glory to God, because of what we said back in Psalm 86. God is worthy of glory, and Jesus Christ displayed the glory of God to the world. And as we know today, 2,000 years later, the entire world pivoted. On the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world changed to now two billion people believe. Now the largest religion in the world. Because the hour came and Jesus glorified the Father as the Father glorified him. Why else? Why else did God do something so what's seeming it's seemingly so extreme? Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You come to Freshwater, you've heard this one before. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. If you need a reason why God did what he did, It says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's spiritually dead, no hope. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who disobey God, among whom we all once lived, all of us in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our obedience led to us being those that are under the wrath of God with no hope. You want to know why God did what he did? Because that's how bad our situation is. But the next words in this, par- in this paragraph, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Here's your because. Because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, even in the midst of our disobedience, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why did God do what he did? Why did Christ die even for his enemies so so he could bring salvation to the world? It's it's really this simple. Because he's rich in mercy. And because he loves you. Like he loves you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. And hear me, if you struggle with this, God does not love some future version of you that's starting to get it right and is getting it all together. He loves you right now as much as he possibly could love you. Because he just does. And I said this, I think I said this last week. You don't, I don't have to ask you why you love your children. You just do. You just love them because they're yours. You, if you are in Christ, you are his. He just loves you because he loves you. Can you believe that? Can you trust that more than you trust those moments when everything feels like it can't be true? When you hate yourself, when you hate others, when anxiety is trying to overwhelm you, when the world is trying to crush you, can you believe that? He just loves you. Because He loves you. Because He thought you were worth all of it. Another 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for our sake. But because of that and through that salvation... God has displayed his righteousness to the world through you. Christ died on that cross, took all of our sin, gave us his righteousness so that through us, God's righteousness, his mercy, his goodness, his love might be displayed to the world. We are the righteousness of Christ. Christ came to display the righteousness of God. He ascended into heaven and now he left it to us to display God's righteousness as he left his righteousness to the Holy Spirit in us. He came so that he, we might display his righteousness to the world. And then last one on this one. Why Jesus, why God did what he did. we can go back to John again. John 15. John 15, 8 through 11. By this, my Father is glorified. Right? Back to the most important thing, the glory of the Father. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Christ did what he did so that we might abide in him. Right? abiding in him live for him live with him believe that he's with us that he's guiding us that he loves us abide in him and if we abide in Christ we will not we might we will bear fruit for God's kingdom right the fruit of the Holy Spirit good works will bear the fruit of the kingdom of God and that brings God glory it brings God glory when you trust Christ and then you live out the life that he's called you to live because you love him, not in, not in begrudging submission, right? Sometimes we just have to submit and do what's right. Yes, sometimes we don't feel like it. We just have to obey, yes. But that's not what glorifies God the most. It glorifies God is when you bear fruit for his name because you love him. So it glorifies God when we abide in Christ. And as if that wasn't enough, Christ says, I also did what I did. He's telling us so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Man, we've talked about that in Philippians a lot, joy, right? Thirteen times in only four chapters, God's talking to us about joy, about being happy. That we're to be happy, not in finding good things in this world, but in Christ. We abide in Christ. He wants his happiness, his joy in the Father to be in us. For us to experience that, that joy, that happens, he said, and with the Father from all eternity past. He wants that to pour out of him into us so that we might experience just how good the Father really is. It's beautiful. That's that's why Christ did what he did. So I'm gonna pause right there just for a second. Which of those truths has stuck with you the most so far? You don't have to holler it out, but I want you to think about it. I want you to go back to it and circle it. Because that's what you pray over. I mean, you could say all of them. Praise God for that. But if there's anything in particular, like, oh, that's what I needed to hear. That's what I need to remember. Circle it and think about it and meditate it. And I don't mean, when I say meditate, I don't mean, like, Easter religion meditate. I mean, like, think about what it's saying. Process what it's saying. Not just one time read it, but, like, really think about what it says about God and what that says in reflection about who you are and how this applies to your life and then talk to God about it. We, we, sometimes we treat prayer as this, like, really formal thing. And he is the, the king of the universe. Hallowed be your name. Right? We do need to come to God with respect. We also just talk with God about, like, you can talk with God and say, God, I, I just have such a hard time believing that you love me. But you say that this is true, that your love is steadfast, but sometimes it doesn't feel like you're faithful to me. All these things happening, I'm not feeling your faithfulness, but, God, this has to be true. So help me to believe that you're faithful. That is a good prayer. That's a, that's a prayer to a Father who you're trying desperately to trust, but it's difficult. It's okay that it's hard. ever hear that, like, it's okay that sometimes this is hard. It's okay that sometimes God feels really far away when you pray. Like David, who had, like, who Scripture says was after God's own heart. Sometimes David was like, God, where are you? And sometimes he would dance around and act like a man. People thought he was a maniac because he couldn't stop dancing because he loved God so much. Right? That's David's perspective, right? That's how far apart he was sometimes. You're going to go through the same things. It's okay. But this is how we fight. This is how we find joy. This is how we find peace. All right, last one. Last one. How did God accomplish these things? We've really already covered that and then what we've already done, so have only got one more for you on this one. How did God accomplish, accomplish what he accomplished? Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14 says this. And by that will, meaning the will of the Father, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, our sin is so offensive before a holy and righteous God That the penalty of that sin is death. That's what scripture says. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Same thing it says in Leviticus, right? The wages of sin is death. That's where the sacrificial system in the Old Testament came from. The animal that got sacrificed was a substitute for our blood, a substitute for our life. So priests would would sacrifice these animals as a substitute for our life so the penalty could be paid. But what it's saying here is that never actually took away all sins. It never really washed them away. It just appeased God's wrath for the judgment. But what this is saying is Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the perfect high priest. So when he completed the work, when he gave his perfect life as a sacrifice for us, when he stood in front of us and took the bullet that was coming for us because of God's judgment and wrath, it was God's wrath and judgment was completely satisfied. So what did Jesus do? He sat down because of the work was. So now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, because he loves you. Trying to get you to see these things. Jesus is not saying there like, I I say this all the time, but he's not sitting there going, oh, come on, why aren't you better yet? He's interceding saying, no, there's more. Come to me, repent, yes, that sin is so offensive to me, but I paid for it, accept my forgiveness, and move forward with me. Because it's been done, the work is done, it's over come trust in me. What a truth we have in Jesus. Church, we're going to cover, quickly cover the other things that we're to set our minds on, but all of them, all of them are rooted in these these truths we just talked about. Again, one more time, these are the truths that we dwell on and we think about and we pray over and we talk with God about. It's the things that we let encourage us on the days when our minds or this world, or our sin, or our struggles, or our suffering try to consume us. But as we already saw, God's not done yet. This is just the first one. Let's look at the second one. The second thing we set our minds on, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable, that can be translated as dignified. Honorable can be translated as worthy of respect. So now obviously we've seen that God is worthy of respect, right? We want to honor God and and. and Lift up, God, or like Jesus' prayer, hallowed be your name. we want to hallow God, give glory to God, yes and amen. But this passage is including more than just how we think about God. Right? We think about the truth of who God is, yes, but it's more. This is, this is geared towards the church. So God wants us to dwell on the things that are actually in our lives that are worthy of respect, the things in our lives that are worth honoring. And this is why Paul says in the passage, I want you to think about the things that I've done, the things that you've seen in me. Like, we're to look at Paul's life and and look how honorable it is and how dignified, how worthy of respect Paul's life was, and we're to imitate it. And we're not only to imitate it, but be encouraged by it. You know, one of my my main roles as an elder, really one of the main roles as deacons, is to be an example to others. Like, you can look up to our lives, right, and and see that they're worthy of respect. Now, you know my life's not perfect. I try to be really honest about those things. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together just because I'm a pastor. But I hope you can see I'm trying to do everything I can to worship God, and even when I mess up, give that to God. And so, like, listen, I'm, I'm meant to be something that you can look to to say that that's worthy of respect, even with my faults, even with my failures. Same thing with your other pastors and deacons. But it's also people in your life. Yeah, people are going to let you down. Know. Yeah, those people are going to be frustrating. But, like, how many people in your life do you have that are actually worthy of respect and honoring? As I said last week, we can have 10 people do something really great for us and one person do something awful to us and we can't get the awful thing out of our mind. It's, it's on repeat in our brain, even though nine, there's nine people in our lives that just did something nice. You think, can't we just see how obvious it is that that needs to change? To think about those that are worthy of respect, that are worthy to be honored, that are, that are dignified, that we can look up to, and not let negative thoughts win. But let the truth win, because the truth is nine out of 10 did Good to you. One did terrible. Let's not let that. Let's not like the enemy went on that one. It's transforming your minds. Okay, that's whatever is honorable. Next one is whatever is just. This might be my second favorite one. Just means to do right. It's related to justice. So like a judge who is a good judge. If someone murders someone, right, and they come into his court and he says, ah, I'm busy, don't worry about it, you're, you're free. Is that justice? Is the family thinking, oh, that's cool, like, Let's show that guy, I mean, I know he, he murdered someone, he murdered my family member, but just let him go. No, a good judge executes justice, right? Or he's not a good judge, right? And in the end, God is a good judge. He is a just God. God is always going to do what's right. But when it comes to justice, I love how Romans 3 states this. In Romans 3, 26, in Romans 3, 26 it says this. It says, it, meaning Jesus dying on the cross was to show his, God's, righteousness at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You ever heard that passage? I think that, like, sorry, but, like, that's amazing. I love this passage. I think about this all the time. That, we didn't talk about how serious our sin is, right? And God has to punish him, punish that or he's not a good God. He has to punish our sin or he's a liar. He has to punish sin or he's not worth trusting. I heard a... a... If you've been to Freshwater for a long time, I haven't quoted this in a long time, but there was an Eastern European theologian that said only Americans, only the West can want a God God who's not a God of justice, that just want a God of love. But come from a place where your family has been murdered and your sisters have been raped and the, the streets are running with blood because of injustice and then you tell me you don't want a God of justice. I have to trust that in the end God's going to make it right. Because all I have left is hate and anger and revenge and death and blood. That's all I have left unless I can trust a holy and righteous judge who's going to make things right. So God is a God of justice and we want him to be. We want to be able to believe that he'll make things right in the end. But we can't make it right. Our debt to God is so deep. It goes so, so, we're so much in debt we can never pay it back. So Jesus came. He came so that God could be just. The penalty that we deserve, the debt that we built up, did not in the end fall down on us. Jesus, like I said before, stepped in front of that bullet, right? He went to the cross, and he took all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment, and it fell on him. He was our substitution. He was our sacrifice. The penalty was paid, so God is just. But also, God himself was also the justifier. We couldn't pay it. We couldn't bear it, so he came himself to play both sides. He came down to be the one who, made, who, who justified us by taking the penalty for us. God is just because the penalty was paid, and he's the justifier because he paid it for us. What an amazing, do you think about how amazing that is, what, how good of a God? He's, he's like, I know you can't do it, so I'm going to come out of heaven, and I'm going to do it for you. And then I'm going to send back up, and then I'm going to come back and make all things new, so you'll really see how just I am in the, in the very end. Our God is so good, and he's just. Dwell on that. that. That's how far God went, because he loves you. And for his glory. Not only that, man, listen, there's people in your life that do the right thing. And you've seen the example that they've done. Like, they're righteous. They're not perfect. We're not talking about perfect righteousness, but, like, they're just. Right? You can look to them and, be like, they, they do the right thing. I can look up to them. There's people that have done the right thing for you. There's also people that have done the wrong thing for you, right? We can all dwell on those things, but there's people who have done right Let's think about those things. Let's think about how how good people can be at times, especially those who love Jesus Christ. Think about these things. Yeah, there are a lot of crummy people in the world, but there's also a lot of people out there to encourage us with their example and their example in our lives, what they've done for us. Think about these things. All right, the next one. Whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Pure can mean innocent here, it can be translated as innocent. It also can be translated as holy. So, you might know probably what is probably the most defining characteristic of God. We don't, to, we don't want to pin God down to one characteristic. God is a lot of things. But maybe the characteristic that defines all the other characteristics is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6.3. God is holy, holy, holy. No other place in scripture does it repeat a characteristic of God three times like that. God is holy, holy, holy because one wasn't enough. Meaning God is perfectly pure. God always does what's right. When it comes to sin and evil, God is perfectly innocent always. God is holy. In the end, that's our confidence. I said before, I'll say it again. Go read the horror show of gods and other religions in Hinduism and Greek and Roman culture. Which, by the way, Greek, Roman, and Viking God culture, it's coming back. People are starting to worship those things again. You think that's in ancient history? Like, there's actually cults that are starting to worship those things again around the world. And they're a horror show of God's, but your God is holy. We can have so much confidence knowing that God will always do what's right. But then it's not just that, that God gave us that holiness in Jesus Christ. That we all know practically that we're sinners. We all know that we've messed it up, but God looks at us as holy because of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood. I love that because you're sons and daughters of God. You're you're royalty. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies, the virtues of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, God saved us. He made us holy. He chose us and He's now given us the privilege to go proclaim his goodness, his excellencies, his virtues to the world. Man, that's, that's amazing. It's like God has made us holy. He sees us as holy and then he wants us to be his ambassadors, false and all, so that we can go out and proclaim him to the world. Like, listen, this is what we live in and we rejoice in and we walk in, the truth that God, when he looks at us, doesn't see a broke down sinner, but he sees His holy, blameless, innocent child made right by his own son, Jesus Christ, because the work has been finished. And that's amazing. Next, what we think about, I love this one too, whatever is, Lovely. That's a very British word, right? That's lovely.
1: Whatever is lovely, that can mean
0: pleasing. It can mean agreeable. It can mean beautiful. Isaiah 33, the prophet Isaiah is talking on God's behalf, and he's talking about the the future Messiah. In Isaiah 33, 33, 17, it says this Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty really simple short verse, but I love it. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Listen, Christ, in who he is and in how he loves and in his humility and his power and his rule and his care for us, is beautiful. Think about who Christ is. It is beautiful. He's not some distant God out there. He's not someone looking down on us wishing we were better. And Christ is also not just what he did. He is our beautiful Savior, worthy of worship, worthy of dwelling on just how beautiful He is to us and how much He loves us. But there's so much more than that. You know, sometimes when I prepare for my sermon on Sunday morning, I'll go drive somewhere. I'll grab breakfast and then just go drive and I'll just park somewhere. And my, one time my wife's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in a parking lot. There. But it's quiet in my car and I can look over my sermon and it's, it, you know, right? And then But I get up really early on Sunday morning, so this Sunday morning I got up at 4:45 and I grabbed some breakfast, and then I sat in a place where I could watch the sunrise while I was going over my sermon. You know, the North Side gets a bad rap, and sometimes for good reason, right? Mm. Evil things happen here. Bad things were happening while I was sitting there. I couldn't see them, but bad things were happening throughout the city, right? And people hate a lot of people hate the North Side. I love the North Side. Mm. There's so much about it that I love, and I can focus on the negative. But I'm sitting there on the north side watching the sunrise come up. And through the sunrise, through the trees, and there's like 400 squirrels all playing in the trees. And I hate squirrels, but I also love squirrels. Anybody with me on that? I love watching them jump. And one jumped, I'm like, whoa, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, nice, nice jump, right? Couldn't believe he's not dead, right? But, like, I was sitting there thinking, like, God is amazing, like, Trees are amazing. Sunrises are amazing. The sunrise through the trees. Watching the squirrels while I'm sitting there on the north side and thinking about how beautiful the north side is, how beautiful my God is, how, be- how much beauty is all around me all the time. Why am I focusing on all the, the bad? I can look past all of that, aware of it, but look past it and worship God because there is beauty all around this church. There's beauty in this room. I've seen the way that you guys take care of each other. Sometimes it's known, sometimes it's not known. But have we had some problems in our church at different points? Yeah. But I, I can't tell you how much the good has outweighed the hard in the last 10 years. It's not even kind of close. It, church, you're beautiful. I love this family. And there's so much beauty that comes out of this and our families and our children. And yes, there's hard things, but there's so much beauty around us Will we look at it? Will we see it? Will we look, try to look past all of the things that are trying to overwhelm us that are coming from our enemy, by the way, trying to overwhelm us and look to the beauty so that our minds might be renewed and look and be thankful. Thanksgiving, let's not take it for granted. Like, things worth worth looking to and being excited about. But we fight to dwell on these things because the news is not going to lead you there. The 24 hour news cycle is not going to lead you there. It doesn't say whatever is cynical, church. Whatever is really funny, sarcastically. No, whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful. All right, the last three we're gonna take together to save time, and because they're basically saying the same thing. Um, if there is anything commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise. Excellent means virtuous, of virtue, right? Anything worthy of praise. Again, a kind of a catch-all, just basically meaning be thankful. If there's anything worth being thankful over, is there anything worth celebrating? Is there anything worth rejoicing over? Because here's the reality. Man, we can focus on people's faults. Even good, like good people who we know are honorable and worthy of respect and are beautiful and are righteous and try to do the right thing and they mess up once and they mess up twice and all we can think about is their faults. Is that not true? Oh, man, that is... Oh, so damaging. But we all get caught up in that. We can, get, we can get hung up on people's faults. We can get hung up on that one boss that just doesn't get it. We can get up, hung up on that coworker or that person in ministry that we do ministry with that we wish they would just do it this way. Oh, I can't believe they do it that way. We can get laser focused on our kids' issues or even our kids' schedules and all the things they've got going on and get overwhelmed by it. We can get consumed by the world's problems. We can get consumed by our problems. But what if when those thoughts came we made like a real effort and hear me a real effort not like "ah, oh, I wish effort but I mean a real effort when we start to get overwhelmed to fight back with all the things that are worthy of grace all the things that are excellent in our life and in others and in creation and in the world and in God so when our weaknesses and our struggles and our doubts Came, they didn't take over our lives. They didn't take over our minds. They didn't take over our hearts. What if, church? Because, listen, look, we don't have to act like it's not true. People are just not great sometimes. Right? And sometimes people are annoying. We don't have to pretend like they're not. right? Sometimes people are just frustrating. Bad things are going to happen. Suffering is going to come. People are going to let us down. We're going to let ourselves down, by the way. How often do we get frustrated? Others, but how often do we let ourselves down? And anxiety is going to try to own us. Because when it comes to anxiety, man, we have so much baggage that we have to work through and talk through and be honest about and all those things are true. But what God is emphatically trying to show us in this passage is that we can have more. And as I said last week, your feelings are a liar. You are a liar. I am a liar. God is not a liar. And he is promising you more. He's promising you more than what those feelings make you feel in a moment. They're real. I'm not, we're, not, we're not acting like those aren't real. But God's more than those feelings in a moment. I mentioned this at the beginning. I'm going to say it again. I said this last week. This is a spiritual battle. This is a tool of the enemy. We must treat it like one. Yes, it's physical. Uh, one more time. Yes, it's emotional. Yes, there's so much baggage in this. Yes, it's tied to trauma. Yes, it's tied to so many different things. Yes, this is not a quick fix. I am not, God is not saying, and I am not saying, get over it. Not, don't, hear, don't let the enemy corrupt the truth of what God is saying today and have this be an excuse in your heart that, like, well, you're just telling me get over it. I can't just get over it, right? It's not what we're saying. I know this is a major deal for some of us. But above all, the kind of anxiety that rules over us the kind of, kind of anxiety that puts you into slavery is a spiritual battle. Above all else, it is a spiritual battle. And God is telling you not only how to fight this battle, but how to win it. Will you believe it? Will you trust him more than your feelings? He's telling you how to win the battle. And listen, I'm on board with counseling. I'm on board with all the other things. But this is the foundation. This is the truth. And I don't think God is saying, if you do these things, you're never going to have anxiety again. We all love the testimony of, I never had this thing ever again. Listen, it's not my testimony. I bet it's not your testimony. Those are the exception to the world. No, what he is telling us is that, I know this is hard. Look how much time he's spending on it. I know this is hard, but I am more. I am more. Your feelings feel real, but I am more. Because your heart will lie to you, but I never will. So here's what we do, church. We pray. We pray. We pray urgently. We pray urgently in anything and everything, every time. As I said it over and over last week, every time. Every time. And we rejoice. In that process, we rejoice in the Lord. And we're thankful. And we set our minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure And lovely, and commendable, and excellent, and on anything that is worthy of praise. Anything that is worthy of praise. Let me kind of wrap up with this. And this is we're going to take this to heart. This is why I had you take notes. This is why I I had you highlight. This transformation of our minds doesn't happen with good wishful thinking. It doesn't happen with best intentions. And it doesn't happen with you just listening to a sermon and hoping that's going to transform you. This might be a catalyst, but me preaching is not your answer. Did you happen to listen to what God said in his word to you today? And it wasn't listen to a good sermon, or listen to a good worship song, or read a good book, or listen to another pastor when you're driving in your car. By the way, do all those things but that's not your answer. This is serious, and it's encouraging. This is really serious, and it's really encouraging. This takes discipline, and this takes real effort. It takes commitment to Christ and his words and a commitment to believing that Jesus Christ will transform our minds over time to be more like His. We have to believe it. And some of you right now don't really believe it. You kind of believe it. You see it in the truth, but you don't really believe it. It's a commitment to what you know and you believe is true over time. So over time, you start to believe it. Because you may start this process, listen, of turning to God in prayer every single time, and it may feel like you're talking to a wall for a long time. I promise you God is there. I promise you didn't is you, I promise. Go, let's go back to the very first text, text. I promise you that God is steadfast. I promise you he is faithful. I promise you he is slow to anger because he tells us this is who I am, so you stay with it. I don't want you to have to force it, but sometimes we have to force it until it comes. It will come. It will come. For if we pursue God this way, if we believe his promises, if we listen to his words and we commit ourselves to what he says, what does it say in verse 9 is going to happen? That the God of peace will will be with us. As we said last week, God does not just give peace. God is peace. And the God of peace will be with us. The God who not only, again, gives supernatural, divine, heavenly peace, but is peace himself. At the end of this road, we, keep, we, keep, we do the things that God says. We're committed to it. We follow him faith so with discipline. You know what we find at the end of this road? What we find at the end of this road is God. And that church is what we truly need. The presence of God. This is an everyday, what an important word I'm going to say next. Every word, every time, disciplined pursuit of the overwhelming peace and goodness that comes with God's presence in our life. And it's a full-blown commitment to God and his ways. It's nothing less than that. So I'm going to close with this question. Are you going to be okay with where you are? Are you going to be okay with the status quo? Or are you going to turn to God and trust his words and walk into the presence of the God of peace who promises, listen, promises to guard your hearts and minds? Let's pray.